father is no longer of use to us. You have something we want. Do you think this is a game? The way we should be. Dad? Arya? We're out of time. You'll be dead. Dad, what is this? What is happening to me? I've kept everything you can do hidden. Hoping to prevent them from finding you. What am I? Everything you need to know is in you. the trailer for Ascendant. Hello and welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eels. In this episode, I'm joined by Antaine Furlong, the writer, director and producer of Ascendant, a new Australian sci-fi, mystery, thriller and fantasy film. Here's the synopsis. A young environmentalist wakes, trapped, kidnapped in the elevator of a super high-rise building at the mercy of her tormentors. The rest I'll let Antone explain, but as you'll hear, it really is something you have to see and experience for yourself. As well as being a mash of all of those genres I just mentioned, Ascendant is also an incredible achievement in special effects filmmaking. The film was shot mostly in a confined space, but thanks to some incredible special effects, this is world building on a massive scale. Here, Antone discusses how he started working on films with his father, including Mel Gibson's Braveheart, moving on to finance, then back into movies, and his plans for an Ascendant trilogy. We also take a deep dive into the making of Ascendant, which I think young filmmakers starting out in the business will get a lot out of. Ascendant is in cinemas from April 8. This film is made for the big screen, so don't sit on it and wait for streaming. Anyway, enjoy. Antane, thank you for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. It's great to have you with us. Thanks, Matthew. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, congratulations on Ascendant. Uh, on the surface, uh, this film is an edgy sci-fi thriller with a subtle uh, environmental subtext that we'll get into later. Uh, while it's entertaining, it's also one of the greatest special effects films ever made in Australia. Uh, oh, while this interview is going to be... While the interview is not going to be all about the special effects, they're certainly worth celebrating and acknowledging because they really are world class. So congratulations on the uh, entire film again. Oh, thank you very much. It was uh, the most exciting uh, collaboration I've ever experienced in my life. And uh, I've had quite a life over the years. And um, I have to say, it's uh, there's a reason why people get so excited about the film business because it's just you're working with the best of minds the most incredible talent over here in Australia. And uh, yeah, it's just, I'm just, I just can't wait. Can't wait. We've got it. We've got a screening on at the, uh, uh, this Sunday with all the cast and crew and, 
that'll be the largest audience so far that will have seen it. So I'm I'm nervous and excited at the same wow. time. Wow. <laughs> Uh, I get excited about these interviews because uh, there really isn't much information about you out there. So I get to learn about you as a filmmaker at the same time sure. as our listeners. Where did yeah. your filmmaking journey begin? Uh, I, well, I, I wasn't born with a camera, that's for sure. I'm not one of these filmmakers who came from, um, you know, a big filmmaking background or, you know, fell in love when I was five years old. It came quite late. Um, I was about 15 years old. My My father... Um, got uh, he, he used to always have a love for animals in our house and somehow he got connected with some production manager um, who asked look Jim we've known each other for a few years now on sort of other terms and not film terms I know you love animals we're we really were struggling here to have an animal wrangler in Ireland would you be interested in uh in doing some of this and my father got into into the animal wrangling side of the film business wow. um and he brought me on to it was during the summer and he brought me on to a set i can't remember the name of it at the moment but um it was a period uh, film and um yeah i you know had no idea what this would be like you know as a 15 year old you kind of you know you, back then especially because technology isn't like it is today yes. where you can see everything that's going on these days um behind sets and how things are done so you know i just rocked onto the set 15 years of age not really that fascinated until i looked at all of these people in costumes the most amazing looking costumes you know, all these period, you know, horse and carts and all this kind of stuff. And I was just, it, it really felt like you step back in time. Um, and then I was just looking over to the right of me and it's got all the filmmakers in their jeans and runners and t-shirts and stuff like that. And I was just, it was like the most surreal experience. Um, I could, you know, I think anybody could imagine when you're, when you're looking at a, you know, sort of 18th century piece to then everybody in runners and sneakers and run, you know, all that yes. kind of sort of sort of thing. And it's not that I just, you know, fell in love with it. It was more, it was, it was just overwhelming the, the feeling that you get. It's just, um, it's, it's, I guess, you know, people who write, you know, write books would have a similar sort of thing. You go into the zone, you're creating a world in your imagination and you're putting it on into words and it goes into a book and the book gets published and, and, and people read it. And then they, you know, then the imagination of the reader takes off and they imagine things differently maybe than the writer did or anybody else. Yes. Um, but with filmmaking, um, it's a very, it's such a visual art. It's so, you're getting to see what the filmmaker is really hoping uh, to explain from their imagination, you know, their idea of this story. And there's no real um, leeway for the audience, like in a book where they can go and imagine things themselves. Um, you're pretty much stuck with, this is my vision. And then the audience will either like it or they won't like it. Yes. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> um, that's a great answer. That's a great insight into how it all began for you. Right. Um, I'm always reluctant to ask filmmakers about uh, things that I've read on IMDb because that site isn't always a reliable research tool, as I've learned a few times in the past. Um, yep. But what was your involvement on Braveheart? Yeah, so again, I just did some production daily work. So I was basically a runner on set. Mm. Um, again, my father um, got all the animals for that particular film. 
um, he, you know, my dad went from um, an animal handler into a art director and then eventually became a production designer um, on a number of films as well. So, uh, yeah, with with Braveheart, it was very much for me. It was, again, just helping out my dad, but also helping out the production crew when they needed a runner with a microphone to help with the enormous sort of level of um you know uh, extras and things like that that they would that they required and it was an awesome experience it was awesome to see you know the mel gibson directing i mean the size of the guy i you know you, when you look at somebody on screen you never really i never really thought he was a big guy mm. until i was standing beside him and and i was just observing I, I mean his arms were like probably bigger than my legs i mean he's a huge he's a big guy you yeah. just you don't you don't see it i don't think he's one of those actors that doesn't translate as much on screen so you know if you look at Arnold Schwarzenegger he looks huge on screen whereas you know Mel Gibson's pretty pretty big guy mm -hmm. and his energy I mean he used to he used to run you know so there would be like there's a few scenes in Braveheart where he's he's in the I think it's um it's one of the castles anyway that they sacked and he's talking to one of the guys up and down um who's way up he's got a he's got a good 50 60 feet up and Mel used to after every take he used to run up the ladder talk to the guy and run back down again and you just he just had incredible energy wow. so it was a it was a it was a big big deal for me that's where you're seeing movies on an epic scale you know and, and what a great film yeah uh, so then you moved into finance right uh, you, you obviously didn't want to pursue a career in film at that time uh, no, so what happened was I worked on a film with Mike Myers. Um, it was an Irish movie. Um, you know, Mike Myers, I, I assume you know who Mike yes. Myers is. Yeah. Um, the killer and, from Halloween, right? No, no, of course yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, not the fictional character, <laughs> the real person. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I was working, uh, I think it was called Pete's Meteor. Um, and it was quite a hectic shoot. There was a lot of work to do on it. Um, and for me, at that, at this stage in my life, um, I was already interested in writing stories and writing scripts and I'd worked with, you know, some Academy Award um, winning directors and I just felt, you know what, this is something I would really like to do. I'd like to write, I'd like to get into the creative side, yeah. but anybody who's worked as an AD will know that's a really difficult task because of the hours you work as an assistant director is, is you're the first on set. Um, and you're nearly the last to leave. Um, and so uh, I needed a day job um, and I really wasn't that interested in doing the working in a cafe, struggling writer um, sort of concept. And I, my mother, uh, so she, she's the one who put the idea into my head. Um, she said, oh, you were always really good at numbers in school. It sort of really came natural. And your dad's brothers are all businessmen. They're very successful. You know, you've got that kind of split brain, you're creative and you're financially sort of astute. And so um, I, that's exactly what I did. I literally, within the space of a week, I applied for a trainee job as a, an accountant. Uh, I got the job. And yeah, it's sort of... <laughs> Just, it took off from there. It just grew and got promoted, and I still wrote, um, you know, wrote scripts and did that did that sort of thing, and um, and then it just, you know, I got kept getting promoted and getting more senior and senior and senior until I became a chief financial officer in a media technology company here in Australia, which you know I helped grow internationally, and um, and then we successfully sold it in 2017, and um, yeah, it was time to. It was time to focus on my passion, what I really loved to do. 
and uh, a big sea change. Um, something I think that's really important for anybody who, I guess, gets stuck into a job and they feel it's sort of going away from them. You know, it's never too late. There's yeah. always a time um, and to never give up. Mm. Um, so here we are now with Ascendant. Uh, in your own words, tell us what it's about. Oh, God, don't ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> Go see the film and tell me. Um, look, it's there's there's a lot of layers to this story. It's it's just not a black and white film. It's it's not a, a sort of a popcorn movie where you go in and switch off and you come out and say, yeah, that was good. You, you do have to participate um, in figuring out. There's a lot of little clues within the story about who she is. Mm. Um, and it's part of a trilogy, um, this this movie. Um, so this is really just the beginning. This is that sort of um, her finding out who she is and what she's supposed to do um, in life. Um, who, What abilities she has, what power she has, what place she has on this earth. Um, she's an extremely strong and powerful character in the world that we know, um, but has not yet been on the silver screen. So... Um, yeah, it's very much about this girl trapped in an environment in the future, which she was trying to avoid um, with her father held captive and she's held captive. And it's really a struggle and journey for her to find out who she is and to try and get out and save her family. Mm. Uh, have you always been interested in superhero films and, and stuff like that? Oh, you know, I, 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 I love all genres. Mm. I mean, I really do. It, very much similar to music. Um, I could, I could, I'm not the kind of put myself into a box yes. with anything. Mm -hmm. Um, I know, you know, there are certain genres that I kind of think are kind of cool and neat and anything with, you know, visual effects, uh, special effects are fascinating yes. because they're even more fascinating to work on than actually to see on screen when you're the filmmaker mm -hmm. because of just the people you work with. Um, you know, and, um, drama is while I love a lot of drama I probably don't have the temperament for it because I would probably want to be thinking about visual effects and going oh I just really love a big meteor game and then blew everything away um so I, I think yeah I tend to as a where I want to go and the, and the sort of stories that interest me I do want to push boundaries and I think we achieved that with Ascendant with the guys um at stage so do you, would, would you say that this uh, this film was more about you wanting to, uh, you know, uh, get into the special effects side of it rather than explore the superhero genre? Yeah, I look, I think so, because I think if you get into the superhero genre, you're, you're really limiting yourself as a director yes. because there's just really not a lot of them out there. Mm. Um, even though they make the headlines, there's enormous amount of marketing pumped into them. There's really not a lot to do and you know there's a lot of filmmakers that are already the chosen ones for those probably over the next 10 years so you really need to expand yourself and i think there's just a lot of concepts out there where special effects visual effects are required i mean yeah. even if you look at mad max mad max is in a hugely successful franchise that's not a superhero movie mm. but has enormous amount of special effects and visual effects in it um so i mean so there's there's plenty of different genres that you can tap into where visual effects and special effects are needed and required for the audience to have a real engaged sort of out-of-world experience nearly.
Mm-hmm. Um, I want to read out a few names uh, for you here. Uh, producers uh, Christy Vernon, who worked on Sweet River, and James Vernon in like Flynn, Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, cinematographer Frank Flick, who worked on Aquaman. Editor Jonathan Tappan, who worked on the Lego Movie. Uh, you've got uh, an Oscar-nominated composer. That's quite yep. impressive. How does a filmmaker who has never made a feature film before assemble such a high-profile crew to work with? Ah, uh, that's a good a bit of luck. <laughs> uh, look, I think look, to be honest, the first the first step is always um, when you meet with the producers, Christy and James. Um, without a doubt, they started this journey with me. Yeah. Um, and we were all on the same page about making this project stand out. Um, I knew Frank anyway from a short I did when my daughter Ari was born, who the character is named after in this film. Wow, wow. Um, and uh, I, I also knew David Hirschfelder because he also composed the music for the short film I did, you know, a long time ago with Frank. Um, so for me, um, it, it was a bit of luck because in 2019, the film business was booming and it was growing in Australia at that time. And we just happened to just have a window when we wanted to shoot where a lot of people were coming off projects. Um, and so I would say there was a bit of luck, but they also really liked the concept. Yes. Uh, I met every head of department. Um, I chose every head of department, you know, because for me it was all about personality, everybody getting on with everybody, everybody going home to their family at the end of the day, you know, feeling happy and, you know, a good environment on the set. That was the most important uh, aspect for me. Um, and I think just everybody got on really well and it was just, it just, you know, it's like one of those very organic experiences where you do, you walk on set and you're looking at all these people thinking they've just come off combined out of them billions of dollars worth of movies. (laughs) That's their experience. And here I am, (laughs) here I am the guy behind the desk going, all right, you gotta, I gotta hope you're going to follow my vision and uh, you gotta, you know, there's a bit of. There's a bit of that nervousness, but you got to suck it up because they have, you know, in the end, you'll find their level of experience. They need discipline from a director. They need vision. They need clarity. Um, and there's just no time to be nervous. There's no time to just sit back and um, you just can't lean, you know, even though they will help you if you get stuck um, in a situation where you're sort of editing the film, the particular scene you're shooting. Um, you might get stuck every now and again, um, and they're always amazing to lean on if you kind of go, look, I'm, this is what I'm trying to do. And and they're just between Frank, Drew, producers, everybody on the set have just, we had a great time. It was just awesome. You're listening to the Cinema Australia podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or cinemaaustralia.com.au. Um, this film was also made without the assistance uh, of Screen Australia. And I know not every filmmaker likes to talk about budgets and money and stuff like that, but I'm sure a lot of our readers would love to know uh, the story behind the making of this film from a budget point of view. And you don't have to mention any exact figures or anything like that, but I speak to a lot of uh, young filmmakers who want to get away from working with Screen Australia. Is there any, yep. is there any advice or anything that you can offer there? Um. Look, I think we were really fortunate because I'm the main investor. So I'm following the Tarantinos and the 
Scorsese and the uh, Ridley Scotts of the world where, you know, I financed my first film. So that's that's the first thing. Um, I was fortunate that I didn't need to go through that process of um, using the government. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. It's just this sort of material is not really the sort of material they tend to, you know, really acquire in their portfolio of projects. Yes. That they it's not to. a tourism Although, pace in any way. <laughs> well, that, that's it. But, I mean, they have funded a few, helped funded a few films. I think 2067 and um, a few others out there, I think they have, they have done. Mm. Um, but I just think with the speed in which we wanted to make this movie um, to get into that level of engagement with them would have just taken too long. Um, just too, you know, too many chefs, I've got this thing, you know, too many people involved can ruin a project, can ruin the dialogue, ruin the flow, um, ruin, you know, ruin the intent. Um, and I just, you know, for me, it was working with people who really want to make this a commercial success. Yeah. And I'm not saying they don't. Um, it's just, you know, it is an agency. They've got priorities about what their message is uh, when the movies they make, you know, um, for Australia and Australians. For me, my only goal is to make a movie for the audience. That is it. Mm. It's There's no political message. There's no, I'm trying to do this and I'm trying to do that. I am purely there for the investor. The investor is the audience yep. who spend their good earned money to come to the theaters, uh, buy their popcorn and stuff to sit down and they want to be entertained. They don't want to know anything further than that. And for me, um, that was, I mean, for all of us, even with the producers, they felt the same way. This was the best route to go. Fantastic. Uh, that's a great answer. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would appreciate that. Uh, hey, I noticed a little Easter egg in the film. There's there's a safe that features quite prominently uh, and the manufacturer brand on the safe reads Furlong. Uh, what can you tell us about that? <laughs> oh, nothing. That was just a copyright thing. <laughs> so, so the sort of design, we were like, what name are we going to put on it? And it was like, well, just stick my name in it because we know it's my name and no yeah. one could ever sue us yeah. if going, hang on, that's our safe and that's our brand name. Did you ever, that is as innocent as that. Wow. Well, wow. and, so, and, so you're uh, not like an Alfred Hitchcock or someone who wants to get into all of the films. No, 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 I don't. Um, I'm very much behind the camera. Yeah. I don't know how actors can do what they do. I just, I admire it. I mean, you, you can't help but admire it. You don't, um, you don't. I don't think you ever really appreciate it when you're watching on screen because while you admire their performance, what you need to see is, you know, like what I would see as a first-time filmmaker. They're like even with Charlotte um, in this very confined space, um, having to spend twenty days on a very highly um, agitated, upset, emotional state throughout the entire 20 days because that's that's her character throughout this um will be that stress level that you will feel on on screen um but what you're not seeing is all the people that are all looking at her Mm. um and so you can imagine how stressful that would be for you know for a lot of actors um and so they really need uh, you know and, and for me i guess with being the director you know my job besides the, the the vision side and all these other things, these other requirements that directors need to do, you know, focus on, you know, we're really there to be their friend. We're really there to be the audience for them mm. so that you're constantly monitoring their performance um, to enhance, engage, to make them feel comfortable in their performance that this is great. 
mm. and everybody else will think this is great too yeah. and i think that's that's what i've learned you know i learned uh, as a director on this on this film uh, charlotte uh, is an actor on the rise you know she impresses with every performance uh, can you tell us about working with charlotte whose face is pretty much this entire film due to that uh, claustrophobic setting that you mentioned mm. Yep. Yes, it was. Look, we we did a campaign around the world. We looked at over a hundred actors, um, actresses around the world. Wow. Uh, and you know, including Australia, so the U.S. So there wasn't really a budget constraint about who we were going to pick for this role. And mm. um, you know, but I had a sort of, you know, the, the character is a very Scandinavian look. And even you, if you look at the way her hair is designed in the film, we were sort of going on that sort of scandinavian sort of a direction um and so we anyway we whittled it down to 50 auditions so we auditioned 50 um for for the film and it came down to five and then it came down to decision time and so for me um you know i was thinking about that um article that ryan reynolds did about the film buried uh, that he was you know the one where he's in a coffin yes, for yeah. pretty much the whole film I was um, thinking a lot about that film while I was watching this actually so sorry yeah, continue. And, yeah. and he you know he he discussed the anxiety that he went through the stress um of being in that hyper state for such a if I think it was for 15 days for him so Charlotte you know Charlotte had to do this for 20 days um and so yeah it was very much character driven so I'm you know I'd met her she was lovely you know, very quiet uh, sort of individual. And, um, you know, we talked about it. I said, you know, this is this would be my biggest concern. And, um, you know, are you up for the challenge? And and she was up for the challenge. And so, yeah, it was literally straight on from that. I thought, you know, she looks the part. She's got a, you know, a great photogenic, you know, face mm-hmm. uh, for the character. She really gives that lovely, um, you know, uh, sort of striking international look about her, which was very important to me uh, for this for this particular character. So yeah, I thought she did an amazing job, and I, I kind of I hope you all see the same as what I saw on, yes. on screen. Yeah, she's fantastic in it. Um, the film is very special effects driven, uh, but um, it, it got me wondering how big was the actual physical shoot in terms of scale. Um, as in people or sets? Or? As in sets, yeah, because I guess the special effects make it very grand, but it was most of it is shot in this lift. Look, um, Fiona Donovan was the production designer and she did an incredible job uh, building, I guess you could say, the modern visual effects set, mm. which is a part set, part blue screen or green screen, depending which um, you, you choose for, for your objective. Um, so Fiona and her team did an awesome job creating a shaft, creating the actual the the, the elevator itself and then building sections of Shanghai, uh, which was then, you know, accompanied with a lot of green screen and blue screen in places, which was also part of the the, the shaft scenes and little sections of the elevator. And then anything externally was all visual effects, which was, you know, all in post-production. Was the was the special effects process a smooth one for you? Or is it a frustrating experience? No, it was, experience? Actually quite, it was actually quite crazy. We had a moment. <laughs> we had a moment. So the, the, the set was was built, uh, the, the elevator was bit, built on a gimbal. Mm-hmm. Um, and for anybody who's not quite sure what a gimbal is, a gimbal is just like an, a mechanical device that sort of moves. So, you know, you see them in stunts where if it's Tom Cruise and the car is turning over and the camera's inside yes. and he's rolling around, they'd build that on this gimbal that turns 
Um, and so Tom would be tumbling inside while this thing is turning it, rotating it. So a gimbal can come in all different shapes and sizes. So we had the the elevator built on this. Um, and there was one day when we had the stunt person in there, Marley was in there um, ready to uh, shoot and the gimbal just went bananas. Oh, it just rose and did this. It was like, it was just, it was a bit of, it was one of those very frightening moments of, uh, oh, no. Uh, but then I was told this sort of happens a lot and it was all done, but we did shut down using the gimbal afterwards just as a precaution because we were just like, ah, we'll just do this in camera. It's fine. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we moved on and it was great. No one was hurt. It was, but it was a bit of a, oh my God, yes. experience. And, um, but, you know, working with everybody between the stunts that we did in there, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff, stunt, practical stunts um, in the film. Um, where you know they you know the visual effects would clean up all the wires and all this kind of stuff to make that real sort of impression of her being lifted because you know the elevator needs to travel faster than gravity in order for you to go flying up flying up into the air like that, um, and so yeah it was it was a it was a everybody I always say this is a little film but everybody <laughs> who sees it goes well, it's not that little I mean even the sound even the sound in this film is awesome I mean you probably got to see this i don't know on a tv or on a on a laptop i saw it on a big tv but with a very good sound system and i can oh, confirm good. the sound is amazing yeah <laughs> I, I think i think um it's it's one of those movies that you will appreciate it more in the cinema yes. just for you know besides the performance the visual effects but the sound was a huge factor for me um in this movie and you know i had pete and and angus um and pete purcell you know he's a i think he got uh, he was part of the mad max team that got an academy award and so he's an amazing guy amazing attention to detail um and then the just everybody else that was involved in in creating sounds and um uh, it was just you really you really hear that in the cinema and you feel it too which was part of the process of making sure that every sound effect every uh, every design that we do uh, sound design, you know, really worked well with the visual effects and the special effects in the film. So you're feeling it, hearing it, and and, and watching it. Yes, uh, I've got a couple more questions. Um, uh, something I mentioned at the beginning was this environmental subtext. But since I yeah. mentioned that, you said that you didn't want anything. You know, you didn't want the film to be political. Uh, what mm -hmm. can you tell us about that uh, environmental side of this film without giving too much away? Are you an environmental warrior of sorts? <laughs> Um, no, I, I just look not a warrior. I, I do think, um, look, I just do think I look at the environment like I do our house or your garden, you know, clean up after yourself. Um, you know, you wouldn't live in a pigsty. So why would you live in a pigsty on the planet? You know, you know, stop using single use plastics, which we did not use on this film. So there was there's things like that, which I just I don't see it as politics. I see it as a necessity. Yes. Um, and it's not one person's view versus another. That's just to me um, just wrong. It's our job to make sure this planet is clean, period, just as our home or we are how we treat ourselves and, and everybody around us. So it's it, so there's not a political statement in this. It's not trying to force my opinions on you, what I think about the environment. It's just the character herself mm, mm. is is a character that everybody in the world will know. Mm. Um, in the trilogy, you will learn more. So you really learn very little. You, you, there's, you will get an idea who she is and who she's going to be. Um, but the, the the other two films really expand on this story. Much bigger visual effects, much bigger uh, breath around the world, um, and you'll start to see it scale up 
as to who she is. Um, and that's the environmental element. <laughs> you've uh, you've mentioned this trilogy a few times now, which has really piqued my interest. Uh, it, it, you sound quite confident that you will be moving forward with other films. Um, look, I, uh, you know, I hope so. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of, um, I guess there's a lot of people involved when it comes to making a decision whether you do a second and third. But let me just say, when I started this, that was the plan. Yes. Because it was written with the intention to expand the character and her twin sister um, in the next project. Um, but the audience dictate the success of every movie. Um, and um, if they love it, <laughs> there's Good. a part two. If they don't, there's just the one unique film that will exist for, for time. <laughs> Um, uh, I've got a question that I ask uh, everyone that I interview and uh, I'm looking forward to how you answer this one. Have you seen any Australian films lately that have stood out for you? Um, look, honestly, I have been so uh, run off my feet with this film um, because, I, you know, I've been working a lot with the guys who are distributing the film here and then working with the a very big independent um, film distributor who's going to be taking over the US and the rest of the world, which that'll be announced in the next week, um, who that independent distributor is. Um, and I, I'll be honest with you, I watched, I think the last film I watched was 2067, oh. and I thought he did an awesome job Fantastic. with the budget he had. Yeah. I really, I, I, I had, I, you know, it's great that there's the films like The Dry and penguin bloom and all those other great pieces of work out there but i'm a real advocate for um a diverse film um uh well, what's the word of like a a slate of films being developed and made in australia i mean we've yet to have an awesome zombie movie with chris hemsworth in it and uh and a, a whole heap of other stars that live in australia i mean we, we we can do everything that the the guys in the in the uk have done i mean they've really expanded you know, the genres, they don't just do like things like Downton Abbey and um, they expand into sci-fi and thrillers and action films. And I think Australia can do the same thing. And hopefully, you know, with the film that I'm doing and films like 2067 and um, and the like, um, what's the other one? It's Occupation. Yes. You know, I, th I just and I think there's another one coming out now. Uh, I think the guys are doing it, but I think it's with Netflix. Um, and Chris Hemsworth did one with Netflix as well. With You know, he's playing an Aussie, but he's. You know, he's a sort of a bit of a, he's a soldier, action hero kind of. Um, so I think, you know, the talent is here. Yes. Um, and I just hope we can, you know, all get the opportunity to just grow the the slate of films that could be developed in the country. Fantastic. Hey, um, give the film a plug. Uh, when and uh, where can people see it? Yeah, so it's coming out nationwide um, in every um, cinema. Uh, with, and we've had great support from them all. Um, so Event and uh, Heights and Village and all the independents and Reading cinemas. Um, it's also out in New Zealand at the same time on April 8th. Um, so all the, the trailer will be run during King Kong in all of the cinemas. Um, so, you know, everybody will get to, you know, see some of it if they haven't seen it already online. Um, so, yeah, we're pretty we're pretty pumped and excited for it. I bet. Um, thank you very much for joining us. It's been great to chat with you, and uh, thanks for everything. Congratulations on the film. Oh, look, look really appreciate it. Thank, thanks very much for the interview. Thanks, Matthew. 
Thank you for listening to the Cinema Australia podcast. You can keep up to date with all the latest Australian film news, reviews, features and interviews at cinemaaustralia.com.au.